0: Welcome everyone to this meeting tonight, organised by the Socialist Workers' Party, the live broadcast this evening. Thank you everyone for joining. My name is Naima Omar. I'm a part of Tower Hamlets SWP branch and I'm going to be facilitating sharing this meeting today. So thank you everyone for joining, I can see there's people from all across the world who've joined this evening. This meeting is on race, class and coronavirus and I think it's incredibly important at this point to have this meeting considering the disproportionary deaths of BME individuals across the world here in the UK and of course in the States. I think we have an amazing lineup of speakers who I am going to introduce but before I do please do leave comments below and leave questions. We want you guys to be a part of the discussion and of course do share as widely as possible on all platforms. So now I'm going to introduce the speakers. So we're very lucky to have Michael Brown, who's an independent socialist activist organiser based in Long Beach, California. He's been involved in organising against police terror and is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter chapter campaigns on the issues regarding migrants' rights and workers' strike struggle. And we've got Megan Pisson, who is an NHS junior doctor and activist with Stand Up to Racism and Patients, Not Passports. We also have Yuri who's an author and a contributor to two books, which I surprisingly have beside me, in which you could get from bookmarks. The first is A Rebel Guide to Martin Luther King, which is this one, is a easy book to read and it's amazing. And he's also a contributor to this book, which is Say It Loud, Voxism and the Fight Against Racism, which you can also Get from bookmarks so just to reiterate about how this is going to run we're going to have our speakers and um, speak and then um whether i have time for questions and they will come back to those questions and we will have another round of questions and they will also come back to those questions so without further ado i would like to introduce megaviton an um, nhs junior doctor and activist with stand up to racism and Patients not passport who will be leading us off with a 10-minute um, speech. So, Megan, would you like to go ahead?
1: Okay. Um, so, thanks for, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to listening to, to Michael and Yuri. And um, I guess I wanted to, to start by, um, Thanking you guys for everything that you're doing and for for kind of coming to this meeting and having this discussion at this time because I feel like these these kind of things are really motivating Um, and then I wanted to to thank all the key workers that are kind of working every day and and putting their lives at at risk for the services that that we can't manage without and um, I'd like to thank the The key workers that are maybe getting a bit more recognition at the moment, um, but also the key workers who are still not getting the recognition that they deserve. Um, The key workers behind the scenes, um, key workers in each family and and the key workers in in the arts and and all other places. Um, And I guess with this pandemic, what it's shown us is um, just kind of so... So obviously who the key workers in this country are and who it is that we can't manage without and who we rely on in a crisis. And I think when when these people have been been shown so clearly, um, we have to recognize them, but we also have to to act on this recognition. And then lastly, um, and perhaps most importantly, um, I wanted to recognize all the key workers who have lost their lives during this pandemic and to thank them for for everything that they've done and for their contributions. But also to to acknowledge the cases of avoidable deaths and to support the calls for greater protection for all key workers so that they can feel safe when providing the services that that we can't manage without. And key workers shouldn't have to risk their lives or lose their lives to be recognized and valued. that this country has three million key workers earning below the living wage is appalling and whilst you can't um, you can't quantify someone's value in financial terms and you can't show recognition purely in in financial means that at this time when we're holding these people up as heroes in the fight against coronavirus and um, we're also undermining their ability to cope economically as individuals. And I I just think that that's that's an affront. Um, So I was getting a taxi the other day, um, because I don't drive, and the driver, who's another key worker, um, spoke of how he had had to work because financially he couldn't afford to stay at home. And he spoke of picking up other customers um, in the same boat as him, who were trying to hide their coughs and their symptoms, and he spoke of the anxiety and the guilt that he felt upon returning home to, to his partner and his three young children. And I think the fact that there are great swathes of this country who can't afford to abide by the coronavirus physical um, distancing guidance is, is just appalling and it completely undermines this country's ability to deal with this pandemic and causes so much avoidable morbidity and mortality. And as with many diseases the death toll in the most deprived parts of England and Wales is double that of the most affluent areas and then again as, as with most diseases the death toll inequality here is avoidable as um, the money's there and we've seen in this pandemic we've seen the, the magic money trees but we also see that we're, we're still pretty selective with who's able to reap the produce from them and so we're, we're kind of preferencing people who are already managing pretty well, um, as they seem to be um, kind of better at managing money and to have worked for, for what they have. But we don't see the family of four who are managing on a single minimum wage as good at managing money or the person who's juggling two jobs and childcare or the people who just kind of getting through the day is is a struggle as having worked for everything that they have and i guess um this idea that your your wealth shows how deserving you are and that we should preference helping those who kind of are by a a kind of narrow standard of measures termed deserving is just so prevalent in our society that we see it in all areas of the pandemic so like i I mentioned before that i've really enjoyed um seeing people kind of come together um, during this pandemic. And I really enjoyed the the kind of acts of kindness that small businesses and groups and individuals have shown towards key workers. But when I look at the role that that big businesses have shown, when I see that I, as a doctor who's paid kind of quite above the the median salary, is being offered um, free meals, free drinks, free electronics. Um, I guess, firstly, I see that when companies can offer these things for free on such a large scale, surely they can afford to pay their workers uh, a bit better, or surely they can afford to pay the taxes that they owe this country. But also, when I see that I'm offered all of these things for free, um, it's just reminds me of the contrast with those people who are struggling so much more than i am to put food on the table and with my patients who are struggling to find three meals a day or with the parents who are going hungry so that their children can eat and beside the facts that none of these things should be happening in one of the richest countries in the world if the aim of these companies is to raise morale i know that kind of looking after um, those in society who are, who are in a bit greater need and finding things harder at this time would rekindle my faith in society and would be the greatest morale boost that, that I could have. And it would also make my job a lot easier and my patients a lot safer if rather than me being offered unlimited internet, my patients were offered unlimited internet so that we could complete our reviews via, via video link. Um, and then I guess um, this This idea that we should only help those who are deserving plays out kind of uh, between classes, but then we also see it plays out between ethnicities when we look at a lot of the rhetoric around um, immigration in the UK. And so I'm I'm all for the the arguments that have come out of of coronavirus, um, kind of the arguments that look at the contributions of immigrants and the descendants of immigrants towards the NHS and our other key services. And when I last spoke about coronavirus, I I spoke about the additional fears faced by many um, key workers whose families depend on their income or their visas. um, Because for for these people, uh, on top of dealing with the increased anxiety of risking their lives every day, um, they're also fearing in the event of the loss of their lives for for their families and, um, and their children. Who, kind of, due to this country's um, hostile immigration policies, would feel that their their position in this society was was unsecure. Um, So since then, I guess um, I really welcome the decision to give families um, of key workers who died during this pandemic indefinite leave to remain. But kind of, as one of my colleagues said, um, I would also say why why wait until their relative is dead? Um, because it it seems to me kind of a a pretty big ask to lose your life, to prove your value to this country. And I guess the the meritocracy that's running through our immigration system, um, it results in people not being seen as as being worthy or having to prove that they're of value to to this society. And that value is often pinned on um, their wealth or their talent and skills that are attached to financial gain or skills that this country needs. And so talks of immigration's contribution to the NHS and to society often move from recognising the kind of the the role that immigrants have played um, in order to counter misinformation or to counter negative stereotypes towards claims making around specific immigrant populations being exempt from legislation that will continue to, to govern other immigrants and Again, this is differentiating the the population into those who are worthy through being of of use to us and those who are not. And um, I'd say that immigration, it's not just about a person's economic um, worth to this country, but it's also about this country's duty to the global population, um, particularly if we look at kind of the historical and ongoing impacts that we've had. Um, And I guess, one thing that we have been hearing throughout this pandemic is that the virus doesn't differentiate and nobody is exempt from it um, but what we're seeing now is that the that it does differentiate um, or at least kind of that the the risk factors do differentiate um, and also the the risk factors for becoming unwell do differentiate um, and so we're seeing it differentiating by class and also by by race and I think there's been a lot of suggestions about um, why this might be, the genetics, lifestyle, um, exposure, the BME population's view of health services and health services view of BME patients. Um, And whilst I'd say like we still kind of may not be able to quantify the exact impact of of each of these suggestions, um, the one thing that I would see all of them having in common is, is power and an imbalance in power, resulting in morbidity and mortality. Um, so I guess kind of many of us will know Michael Marmot, um, and he's written about um, what he calls how unnecessary deaths and suffering of disadvantaged people, whether in poor countries or rich, is a result of the way we organise our affairs in society. And then he argues that failing to meet the fundamental human needs of autonomy, empowerment and human freedom is a potent cause of ill health. So whilst I think that we should focus on addressing coronavirus in in every level, in order to address the the kind of disparities in this pandemic and also the causes of, of all causes of ill health, we must address the the dangerous inequalities that remain in workplaces, um, in communities, in this country, and on a global scale in in power. Um, and then, I guess, um, in addition to kind of holding the potential for addressing health inequalities, giving power to those who traditionally don't have power or don't have voice it may also provide us with um, alternatives to how we organize our society and alternatives to our approaches to health and well-being. So I guess kind of with with power imbalances in mind, um, I feel that we also must predict how these might play out um, through the course of this pandemic and was looking at um, what lincoln Phelan argues. So they say that the the capacity to control disease and death creates disparities. And when we make gains in our ability to control disease, people with more knowledge, more money, power, prestige and beneficial social connections are better able to harness the benefits of the control we have deployed, developed, sorry. So I guess whilst I'm eager for us to, to develop a, a vaccine, I can't help but think of all the, the kind of long line of um, medical advancements that we've made that have failed to make the journey towards those who who are in the greatest need in the majority world. And so I feel that we also have to be addressing those power imbalances at this time as well. Um, And then I guess kind of looking at power, I feel that we also should reflect on the the inequalities and the global priorities that provided the environment in which this strain of coronavirus was was created. Um, And then also Allowed it to, to spread, um, whilst despite governments being advised to lock down. Um, and then I guess we also have to reflect on how kind of scapegoating migrants, UK minority groups, and those to be seen as kind of making poor lifestyle choices um, for failings in our NHS distracted us from the true causes of the failings and left us with a healthcare service that's far less able to deal with this pandemic than it could have been. Um, and then i guess to to finish like whilst i'd say that the pandemic is a is a travesty and it's heartbreaking to see all this unnecessary anguish and, and loss of life um, the only way i see forward is for us to to learn from it and to transform things for the better and i guess at every level we've seen um, the positive impacts that individuals and groups have made uh, during this crisis and we've seen the desire among so many of our friends, our colleagues, our families, and and our communities to ensure that we never go back to to normal because normal wasn't working for so many people. And I guess valuing people based solely on their economic condi- contributions can't be normal. And then having members of the public donating to the NHS if it's a charity, whilst the government strip it to its bare bones, shouldn't be normal. And then having our population our key workers or or anybody relying on food banks and working below the living wage in a country where the six rich richest people have the same wealth as the poorest 13 million should never be normal again so yeah i'm looking forward to to the questions and to hearing the rest of you guys
0: Thank you, Megan. Um, so, yeah, so thank you so much, Megan, for leading that off. Currently, we have over 450 people um, watching us at the moment. So, that's incredible. But please do share and also do leave your comments below with questions that we will get a chance to read out. We do have two rounds of questions. So, the more questions, the better. Um, next up our next speaker which i'm so excited to introduce is michael brown and um, joining us from the states in the early hours of the morning and um, thank you for joining us um so michael is an independent socialist um an activist organizer based in long beach california he's been um a part of organizing against police terror and um, it's a co-founder of black lives matter chapter um is campaigning on the issues regarding immigration rights and workers' strikes and support as well. And Michael will be speaking for 10 minutes or so. So please be leader, Michael.
2: For sure, thanks so much Name. I really appreciate that introduction and it's definitely a pleasure following Megan and also being on the panel with Yuri. So I just wanna give a big salute to all the comrades, especially over in the UK and also the Socialist Workers Party for opening up this opportunity for me to talk about what's going on here in the States and, you know, just give you my perspective on things. And and definitely big shout out to everybody who's tuned in right now. There's a million other things y'all could be doing, but I'm really appreciative that y'all, you know, decided to tune in for us. So with me, um, I got some bullet points written down here. I'm going to be hitting on some of the same things that Megan talked about and also uh, what Yuri wrote about in one of his recent articles about this pandemic, definitely not being genetic or biological, but, you know, having some real material and some real tangible roots as to why it exists. So I won't promise to be exhaustive or get to everything, but, you know, we'll just hit upon some major things. So the first thing I want to kind of lay out for folks um, who are not in the States is kind of an overview or just the picture of what's happening. And I'm going to mostly talk about Black folks. You know, we always talk about people of color and, you know, those are definitely our allies as well and, and coalition builders. But you know, when it comes to the racial paradigm in America, it starts, um, on the black and white kind of lens and then everything is framed from there. So just first off, I just want to share like an old saying, you know, that, that older black folks have always passed down to us here in America. And it goes like this, it says, when America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. That's something I always heard growing up. And, um, it's really apropos right now and what that's really speaking to it's an old saying but what it's talking about is it just speaks to the disparate outcomes and how problems and issues in this society which one may assume you know may have the same impact on all people it actually doesn't um so what it's basically saying is when white america gets a cold black america gets pneumonia and the covid 19 crisis is no difference um there's some people running around here talking about it's the quote unquote great equalizer but now this latest pneumonia, so to speak, um, is proven to you know really be ravaging the lives of working class black people in this country, so I won't get too stat heavy because we're really pressed for time here, and you know we want to really open it up for questions, but just for some key numbers and some in some context to paint a picture, um, as comrade Yuri pointed out in his recent article, like I said earlier, none of this is biological, none of this is genetic I mean there's a direct correlation between. You know, who's being infected by COVID 19, how and why they're being effect, infected, and ultimately wh- whether they live or die. There's a direct correlation between that and also their class position in society. Um, none of these outcomes exist due to happenstance or, or any kind of mysteries. You know, and I say that because, you know, recently, I think about a week ago, um, at a presser, Donald Trump, the president, he was asked about, you know, the disproportionate effect that this thing is having on Black folks here in America. And he, he used the word, I think it was, quote unquote, surprise. You know, there's no surprises about that, this, because when it comes to cataclysms or anything in this country, whether it be Hurricane Katrina or COVID-19 or floods, you know, poor people get hit the worst. And, you know, disproportionately black people in this country are poor. So um, I just want to get into some of the reasons as to why this is happening in America. You know, and according to some of the latest statistics I had tracked down you know, Black Americans, you know, we comprise 20% of all service workers. Um, that's places like Walmart, fast food, restaurants. We're 30% of all bus drivers. We're 21% of everybody who works at the uh, post office. And, you know, according to the last census, we're only like 12 to 13% of the population. And then, um, you know, those numbers are even more stark when you start looking at our numbers at corporate behemoths like Amazon and Walmart, you know, where we make up a a real disproportionate amount of the uh, workforce. So, in addition to these essential employment um, uh, opportunities, you know that we're always, you know, kind of stuck in, into when it comes to the American economy. Uh, you know, mass incarceration is is proven to be another, you know, site of, you know, large infection when it comes to Black folks in America. You know, um, as people know, you know, America incarcerates like a quarter of the people who are incarcerated on this earth you know that's two million people who are locked up in this country and half of them are black so you can just think of um you know cdc guidelines trying to be followed in in, in these barracks in these in these basically dungeons you know that are the prisons in this country um i think the last time i checked as of like right now service workers are really being affected by COVID 19 um older folks that like lit, uh uh Retirement facilities and total care facilities are really being affected, and also prisoners um, who are uh, uh, disproportionately black. So um, a lot of people have been, you know, used this opportunity to try to get a lot of low level offenders and also non-violent offenders, you know, um, released in places like New York and LA especially, um, which are these big hubs of black mass incarceration. Um, Other than that, uh, another effect that this is really having on black folks you know, is you know, when you start looking at the homeless population, um, which is a disenfranchised population in this country, that doesn't have access to you know basic necessities like hand washing, um, you know, like hand sanitizer, things of that nature, shelter. You know, so when they sheltered in place, that was one of the first questions a lot of us are were asking, especially here in LA, because uh, we're like the epicenter of of homelessness in this country. Um, a lot of people come here for the weather. And they they tend to stay here, you know, even if they don't have a place to live. So that was the main question a lot of us were asking is, you know, how can you shelter in place if you're homeless? You know, so and then even when you look at things like sheltering in place and and when they start imposing, you know, stay at home orders that that poses, you know, other questions for us as well. Because if you know anything about stop and frisk and, and, you know, the racist nature of the police in this country. You know, we, we're not in a position to look at these as, as just these innocuous kind of issues, you know, that are that are going to hit everybody the same. You know, that was one of my first questions when they started sheltering in place and issuing orders. And, you know, you see the National Guard being called up, you know, I immediately start thinking of issues like, you know, Watts or like just a few days ago. You know, we had the 20 I think it was the 28th anniversary of the L.A. riots or Ferguson. You know, when I think in a National Guard being amongst a civilian population, you know, if you're a black person in America, you got to start thinking about that kind of stuff. Like, okay, what does this mean for us? Because we know that, you know, when it comes to policing, um, according to all the stats and and all of our lived experiences, uh, we don't get police the same as everybody else in this country. So, you know, that poses a lot of different questions there. So um, that's just some of the issues that have been happening um, to, to black folks in general in this country, some of the questions being posed. So another thing I want to get into is just, you know, what's kind of been the response so far. Um, The response from both sides, both the Republicans and the Democrats is, you know, as you can guess, has been woefully inadequate. I mean, we had, uh, what's this guy's name? Jerome Adams. He was a U.S. Surgeon General, like in a press conference a few weeks ago, you know, he was talking about, you know, Black folks and, and, and people of color needing to, you know, drink less and smoke less, you know, which totally just, you know, Absolves the whole system of its, you know, systematic uh, locking us into poverty, and puts it all on the individual. And then when you look at the other side of the aisle, you know, things aren't all that much better. Uh, Van Jones, who's a well-known liberal commentator, kind of one of the stalwarts of, of corporate media, you know, CNN, MSNBC, and that whole crowd, you know, he mentioned lifestyle choices, you know, which is basically, you know, the same thing that the right wingers are talking about. So they all they always try to you know take these systematic problems and si- structural issues and you know and reduce it back to the individual you know which is you know right in line with the whole neoliberal uh you know nexus or paradigm however you want to say it so yeah you start seeing that from both sides of the aisles um they're not talking about structural and sh- and systemic issues but they're talking about they're bringing it back to the individual and quote unquote personal responsibility so and then another thing we've seen b- from both sides is you know, in terms of the Republicans, I mean, you know, they basically spearheaded this stimulus package that happened recently, which was really just a a, a corporate giveaway. You know, and despite you having some some pretty audible, you know, uh, speech makers on the other side, you know, people like Ocasio-Cortez and even Bernie Sanders, you know, they got up there and they was, you know, doing doing a fire and brimstone act in Congress. But, you know, they all co-signed the shit. They all passed it. You know, so there was no opposition up there or any advocates for working class people in this country um, when it came to giving all this, all these trillions of dollars to these banks and these private corporations who didn't even need to be bailed out. Um, so, yeah, that's just been a little bit of the response. And just real quick, because we're coming up on the wrap up, I just wanna talk a little bit about what's been the pushback. And so far, you know, as you can imagine, it's been pretty splintered. Um, I, I wish I could say that black folks were in a great position in this country as far as having left wing organization and also having a, you know, a robust union movement, but we don't, um, it's something that has to be rebuilt from the ground up, but I am heartened by the fact that, um, you know, the fast food workers and also the service workers, you know, they haven't laid down and taken this, they've been fighting back, they've been mobilizing, we've seen like 150 wildcat strikes ever since the beginning of March, and many of those have been led by black workers at places like the auto factories, um, at Amazon, at Instacart, um at you know, here in LA recently we had Pizza Hut workers and McDonald's workers um who were spearheading um, um strike actions where they just walked out. Um no union sanction, no permission, none of that. They just took it upon themselves to really initiate that action. Also, you know, you've had groups like Cooperation Jackson, which is based in uh Jackson, Mississippi, and also the Black Socialists of America, you know, which is a small group, but they've been punching far above their weight. They've been initiating uh uh what they're calling a the general strike—it's not really a general strike—but what they're calling for is the first of every month. They want people to uh, take action, such as rent strikes, um, labor strikes, and things of that nature. And uh, uh, addition, in addition to that, you've had a lot of groups around the country who are very small, you know, kind of scattered, you know, initiating you know mutual aid projects and 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 you know just helping out each other. So that's been some of the pushback that we've been seeing. Uh, we got a long road ahead of us. But I think this presents a really good opportunity um, to really build a black left, um, especially coming off of the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, failed campaign where, you know, a lot of young black folks, you know, deviated from Democratic Party establishment and Democratic Party in general. And they voted for uh, Bernie. You know, many of them right now are, you know, pledging that they won't even vote for either of these candidates in November. They're not going to fall for the lesser evilism. So we're starting to see that, you know, in this post-Obama era, this, you know, this era where you have, you know, where you had Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street, you know, which gave a lot of fervent um, to these different movements and to this different um, kind of political uh, mentality that's been taking place. So yeah, those are just some things I want to touch on real quick. I'll end it here because I'm going over a little bit, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to coming back to the questions and also um, chiming in a little bit later with some more opinions.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Michael, for that. And it's incredible to hear about struggles across the world and especially in the States. And I think the fight continues and we have to constantly be pushing back. Um, Just before I introduce our next speaker, I just want to say we have 500 people currently watching. Um, Please do share and please, of course, leave questions on contributions, questions and comments, and below. Uh, yeah, we will have a chance to read out your questions, and so we do want you to be a part of this discussion because it's incredibly important. Um, our next speaker, Juri Fassad, um, who I said, is an author of a Rebel's Guide to Martin Luther King, and is a contributor to Say Out Loud: Marxism and the Fight Against Racism and you can purchase both of this on bookmarks online and they are currently doing delivery so without further ado yuri
3: thanks Naima, and thanks to megan and michael for really excellent introductions um really enjoyed listening to michael and telling us something about what's happening in the states particularly interests us over here um i want to start by saying how many times in, in recent years has someone said to you, why do you always make things about race? You know, it's such a common refrain, and it comes mostly as a whinge from right-wingers who fear equality and, you know, are, are opposed to equality. And you occasionally hear it from some who describe themselves as on the left who think that identity politics somehow has replaced class politics. So there's this kind of You know, we're racializing questions is something that's often uh, that's often sold to us Well, the practical outcome of not talking about race or downplaying race or arguing that somehow or another we live in a post racial society because we've had a black U.S. president and we've got two Asian chancellors in succession and one Asian Home Secretary here in Britain that well, the practical outcome of not talking about race should now be clear. The fact that we don't accurately know how many BME people in Britain have died from the virus is because those in authority did not see any reason to keep count. It's a result of not talking about race and thinking that race is not not a factor. After the event, the government now says we need to understand why BME people have been disproportionately affected, but beneath their crocodile tears comes uh, a blame game. So, you know, we also hear, you know, how many times do we hear when someone has died that that person had underlying health conditions? And I just feel like that that is the devaluation of their life. You know, that we're told that the implication really of saying that is that somehow or another they brought this upon themselves. And when they say that particularly about BME deaths, I think what they're saying is that our culture plays a role or our genetics plays a role or there are other factors which are specific to us and to to do solely with us that are that are to blame here. And these explanations are very convenient because they locate the problem at the level of the individual. Um, It's our fault our diets are wrong. It's our fault that we don't exercise enough. It's our fault that we live in multi-generational housing. Uh, It's our fault that we don't see the doctor often enough and that we don't stick to our meds. You know, all of these things become individualized and we don't see them in any any kind of context and not only does this suggest that there's something inherent and therefore racially coded into us, but crucially ignores the systematic way that inequality in society finds its expression in our health. Capitalist society determines who gets sick, how sick they get and whether they live or die. It does so today just as surely as it did when children were sent into mines and mills in the 18th century. You know, there's no difference really in terms of how people's health outcomes. Capitalism is the biggest determinant of, uh, of how your health is going to be. We know that workers doing the lowest distinct jobs, people driving Ubers, people helping the sick, people driving buses, people providing care to the elderly are amongst the hardest hit. And we also know that these jobs are disproportionately occupied by BME people. So it's quite easy to see who's suffering But the question for us as socialists has to be who benefits from the system of discrimination? Who gains when a third of Bengali families live in overcrowded conditions compared to around 2% of the white population? Or who benefits when 18% of the English NHS workforce is BME, but senior health management comprise uh, of 93% uh, white? So, you know, these huge disparities are obvious. But the question for us must be, who benefits from that? Now, I want to try and answer that. It's common sense to believe that white people as a whole gain, gain from this setup. And that by implication, all BME people lose. And I want to argue that that's too simplistic. Um, whilst it's absolutely the case that BME people are at the sharp end of this crisis. It's not true that all BME people are facing the same risks and the same outcomes. Um, For a start, on the question of testing, if you're wealthy, you can buy a test no matter what your skin colour. If someone in your family tests positive, it's easier to self-isolate in a big house with several bathrooms and a well-stocked kitchen than if you're poor. And if you get sick, there's no five hour wait for NHS 111 to call you back, because if you're rich, you can go private. And all of those things apply to rich people, whatever their pigmentation. So not all BME people are at the sharp end. And it's also true to say that most white people are not uh, privileged in this situation. If we look at say nursing assistants, for example, in the NHS, 83% of NHS nursing assistants are white. Can we say that they are really, they are the people who are benefiting from the discrimination that that exists? Most of them are earning less than £18,000 a year and can barely get hold of PPE, even if they're working on a COVID ward. Uh, They can join the online queue for a test, only to find that all the tests are gone within the 30 minutes. In what sense are they beneficiaries from this situation? Of course, there are real differences in the way people and especially poor people are treated uh, because of their perceived race and ethnicity. I'm not trying to say that people are all all working class people are all treated equally. We're not. It, It really is differentiated and race is a big factor in that and Marxists should be amongst the first to point this out. We should be the people who are pointing out the discrimination that's going on and making people aware of the disparities that that, that exist under the system. But we also have another important duty, and that's to show that the real beneficiary of discrimination is the capitalist system. So long as workers of different hues look at each other as competitors and enemies, We will be forever squabbling amongst ourselves for crumbs from the master's table. In order to unite, we have to smash down the terrible chauvinism that does exist amongst some workers. Those who think that their fair complexion and Britishness give them something in common with the elite must be shown the truth. And those who can't be one must be isolated to stop their poison from infecting infecting others. Our rulers are involved in a desperate attempt to convince us that we're all in it together for the so-called national interest. The reality is that class and racial divisions make a mockery of these notions. You know, it's uh, the argument, the, the nonsense that comes from Boris Johnson about us all having a common interest when the way this disease is affecting race people on a race and class basis is now so obvious for people to see is... It tells us something about what the purpose of that uh, that those statements are, and they're to try and create a false community and a false a collective uh, identity amongst people here to think that will overcome and that will obscure the class and racial device that uh, that exists. Now, I think our overarching task is to try and convince workers of all backgrounds that if we combine together our superior numbers. And the essential role we play in society and the economy and our collective intellect means that we can settle for much more than crumbs. You know, I think what we have, what we've shown during the course of this crisis is, is that we do the serious work in this society. The people who tell us that they're the captains of industry, they're the brains behind the operation. They're the people at the top of the society, are there because they're the cleverest. They're the most astute. Where are they now? Where are they now? Where is Richard Branson now? Where are the multi-millionaire class now living on islands as far away from here as possible? Whilst we, our class, are the people who are getting their hands dirty, either driving us to work, you know, making meals for us, looking after our parents, looking after us when we're sick, all of those people. We're the people who've been told that our job is just to sit and take it. Now our task as socialists is to turn that on its head, to give people a sense of their own power and their own potential, and say, in order to do that, we have to smash the racial divide. We have to smash the prejudice that does exist in order to make a basis for a united response. So that's where I'd like to leave it.
0: Thank you so much, um, Yuri. Thank you to all of our speakers for the question and all of our speakers for leading off. We do have a number of questions and just before I read the questions out, we want more to come in because we're going to have another round. So please do leave questions below and also do continue to share. So the first question is, uh, what role has institutionalized racism played in the COVID crisis? That comes from Simon. And the next one is from Mike um, who says, how do we organize to prevent danger and illness to workers in the US and here, especially low paid, many of whom are black and are people of color? And we have another question from Josh, which I believe is probably directed to Michael. everyone else can answer, of course, um, about, there's a lot of people who uh, who seem to have mobilized behind Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. What are the aspects for socialists and um, to organize in this moment? And luckily we have a bonus question. I guess we normally do three, four, but we have another question. Um, and the question is, what do the panelists think uh, that unions can make demands and fight for better pay conditions during this crisis so yeah um we're gonna st- mix this up and we're gonna start with michael first and um, uh who will have five to seven minutes to come back on these questions and um, so would you like to go ahead michael
2: definitely thanks for throwing it my way uh Neema. um so i'll be pretty quick with these sort the, of as far as the first question um Preventing danger and and illness for workers in the USA or or, or the UK. Um, You know, I think we're seeing I think we're seeing living breathing examples on on, you know, how to combat these issues, you know, that are sitting right in front of us. You know, I mentioned earlier all the numerous strike activity that that we've seen here in the U.S. And I know overseas and um, particularly in Europe, I mean, there's been lots of actions, um, which is you guys tradition, even more so than ours. You know we're several due to mccarthyism and red baiting and um the class collaboration class collaborationist nature of our unions here um we're several decades removed from you know seeing the type of militancy um in our working class that we've been seeing over this past month i mean we've had some episodes here over the past few years you know with teacher strikes and and um some of the actions we've seen with the uaw um although those those actions haven't gone far enough. Even the fight for 15 for fast food workers, um, you know, as uneven as it is, it's it's done a lot to raise, you know, class consciousness amongst workers. But yeah, I think, I think you know, some of the best remedies to combat, you know, um, some of the issues we're facing in the workplaces is, is, you know, people banding together. You know, I know that sounds cliche, but, you know, um, we, we're growing up in societies where they told us things like, you know, people quote unquote flipping burgers, you know, didn't have that much, much value, but you know, now those people are classified as quote unquote essential workers. You know, there's this whole campaign going on right now, but with all the big corporations in America, where they're lauding and and celebrating working people as quote unquote heroes. And what that really is, is it's a con game. Um, because, you know, they're calling you a hero in lieu of, you know, giving you the proper amount of PPE or the proper amount of hazard pay or you know paid time off and things like that or you know telling you things as simple as hey i'm working in the amazon warehouse with two or three people who are infected you know so instead of doing all that what they want to do is they want to call you a hero you know um which is just, you know a con game like i said so yeah i think people banding together realizing their own power um uh you know the points of production we make these societies move they don't move without us particularly in you know um healthcare and logistics um, which is really big in this country. And we've seen a lot of activity, you know, um, amongst truck drivers and um, uh, in warehouses all across this country. And, you know, these people, they've been winning. Um, it's not about writing your writing to your congressman. It's not about electing the right Democrat. It's been about, you know, straight up action at the point of production. And people have been able to wrench some concessions almost immediately um, at a lot of these places, in some cases, the same day. I mean, if you and your 10 coworkers decide to walk out of the pizza hut, which, which, which did happen here in LA. I mean, those folks got concessions within two hours. It was crazy, you know? So that's where the real power lies. And then a second question, um, I didn't write it down, but it's about Bernie Sanders, I believe. Um, as far as what opportunity that presents for socialists to, um, organize. I mean, you know, I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders. So, you know, I didn't really buy into the whole Bernie thing all that much myself, um, but I think he was a good vehicle um, to raise some class consciousness. And I think what we're seeing um, out of his campaign uh, amongst the people who drew the right lessons is, you know, they're continuing the on the ground work that they were doing um, prior to his his election. Um, a lot of his people came out of Occupy. They came out of Black Lives Matter. They came out of, uh, you know, real grassroots movement. So um, I think a lot of the people are returning back to those works, whether whether it be mutual aid networks or some of the rent strike activity that we're seeing around the country or even in some of the labor union um and and unorganized workers actions that we've seen around the country. People are returning to that work. They're not getting too caught up in into electoral politics. So I think that's a great opportunity um for socialists to plug into um work and continue it continue it despite us, despite their candidate not being able to win. And it definitely has changed the conversation in this country as well. Um, you know, wealth inequality is on the tip of everybody's lips right now, especially, you know, the backdrop where you got the backdrop of a pandemic where they're handing out hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars, you know, to already wealthy people. And they're giving us a measly $1,200 check, you know, which is just some BS. So, um, you know, you can't have all of these different uh, contending forces and, and, and contradictions and, and not, you know, at least start asking some larger questions about the society. So. Um, unfortunately, I forgot the last question, but maybe we can pass it around, and I can um, I can look at it um, in a minute.
0: Okay, thanks, Michael. Um, so next up, we have Yuri, you better be answering the question. Would you like to go ahead, Yuri?
3: Yeah, I was really interested in what Michael was saying there about uh, burning, because obviously we see it through a slightly refracted lens over here, so to here an activist in the States telling us how it is is very interesting and I suppose it for me what's interesting about both Bernie and to an extent um, Corbyn over here in Britain is the way it opened people's minds to the possibilities of envisaging a life beyond capitalism to thinking about a a different way of organising society and I think now there must be many thousands of people who having gone through the experiences of Bernie and of Corbyn and now being faced with the pandemic are thinking that we have to live in a very different kind of society. Uh, it's not a question of a luxury of choice Well, this is something that's an absolute necessity if we're going to uh, take on the key questions of the environment which uh, uh, which actually gave rise to the, the pandemic and the question of food and the, so many of the vital questions of now. And so. What interests me about that is the relationship between that question and the question of how do we organize? Because it's very it's positive to think about how we want the world to look in the future. Um, I'm in favor of people doing that. But let's think concretely about this, that the fight for the future has to begin now. And I know that that we work in a very restricted uh, time uh, that makes collective action much more difficult than it normally is. But to think that we can just sit on our hands until this lockdown is over and then suddenly launch the fight is wrong. We have to think about the people who are suffering now and how do we create political pressure now? And that means, I think, taking some risks and doing some things which are, uh, which which provoke the, the, the people's ire and make people think a bit more about these about these questions. So I want to congratulate all the health workers who have been trying to turn the uh, silent protests that there were this week this week to what work, workers memorial day into something more political by demanding proper ppe and proper testing and, and better, better equipment but also those workers who say how am i supposed to live on nineteen thousand pounds a year and you're calling me a hero but i can't feed my family now we have to find a way of making their demands central uh, as well and whether that means making banners and posters and sticking them up outside hospitals and other places where, where they're going to see an audience, whether that means doing a lot of online stuff, which I know people uh, are, are doing, whether it means trying to politicise the weekly claps for the NHS. I think we've all got to think about what opportunity do I have to raise the political stakes in this game to make the idea of we're not going back to the old normal at the end of this something more than just a you know a, a, a nice a nice dream a nice a nice thought. So I think you know we have to get our hands dirty with that kind of thing. I just wanted to end on the question of institutional racism, because, you know, the the, the question of institutional racism in the NHS is not a new question. If you went back a year or so, you would have seen a major report into bullying, racist bullying inside the NHS, in which a majority of BME staff in the NHS said that they had been racially targeted, uh, usually by their managers. And so, you know, that the people have been trying to raise these points, for several years now and only now are we beginning to see that people want to uh, in, in in management well, are starting to pay attention but why are they paying attention they're paying attention because we're making a noise uh what that should tell us is we have to make more noise um you know we have to think about why not only the people who are disproportionately affected by the disease and the mortality rates and so on but we also have to think about why is it the case that so many people at the bottom of the NHS, the people doing the, the lowest rung jobs are black and Asian? Why is, why is that the case? You know, And why is it the case that so many staff, even the up further up the chain, complain about the racism of the structures and, and, and their, their superiors? And I think we should make that very much part of our, our, cam- our campaigning in the future.
0: Oh, thank you so much Yuri, for answering those questions um, and before I bring in Megan, I just really want to Ill- reiterate. and um, please do continue to share and please do continue to ask questions and uh, we have another round coming up so and um, Megan would you like to take on those questions? Yeah, uh,
1: thank you. Um, so yeah, it's been really interesting hearing, hearing the other answers as well. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, I just wanted to address the, the first one about the role of institutional racism had on the COVID crisis. Um, and I guess going back to some of the reasons that people have put out there for um, there being kind of a, a disparity um, in, in the deaths by by race, um, not necessarily reasons that I, I would agree with, but just some of the ones that are out there um, and kind of. Picking, starting with the, the first one which is lifestyle and, and picking up on what Michael was saying about um, kind of people being told if they just make healthy choices and, and good lifestyle choices then their health would improve and I mean um, kind of ignoring the, the obvious fact that often people have very very little choice and um, kind of going back to um, what Marmot says about the, the kind of um, choice that people have in their lives being related to their health um, and that kind of if, if people don't have the the options uh, to make the choices that they would want to make or if people are facing other difficulties that narrow their choices um if I think of of things that are typically seen as as a poor lifestyle choice when I ask my patients um kind of whether they would want to do that or whether they would want to change it and they generally say they would want to change it um this is also, kind of whether people should have to have to change and have to make healthy lifestyle choices for their, their lives to be of value is, is also kind of a, a completely a thing that's completely up to for debate. Um, but the fact that there are patients who would want to change the lifestyles that they lead, but they aren't able to, whether it's because of kind of undue stress or whether it's because services aren't available to them that are available to other people, there's um, there's plenty of things that I would say um, kind of in terms of institutional racism, just um, just the ability for people to to lead the lives that they want to lead, to have um, kind of good housing and, and all of these things that we know kind of result in, in improved health. Um, but then also kind of moving on to exposure. So I was reading a thing from um, this black nurses in Birmingham saying that they felt that they were being moved from kind of safer areas of, of healthcare onto the front line. Um, and so I think kind of potentially there's there's the the increase in exposure, um, either because people are already working in these frontline jobs, kind of there's the statistics that, that Michael and Yuri have, have given us show, but also they were being moved to those jobs as, as well. Um and then I think potentially that's where maybe the the power imbalances come in, um, and that because I know among among BAME doctors, they know that they're more likely to receive complaints, more likely to be brought up against the, the GMC. And I've heard people say that they're not going to bother to to kind of argue something or they're not going to they can't really say no because they don't feel that they're in that situation or they don't have that power. Um, and particularly my colleagues that have perhaps come from, from overseas and already feel that there's a hostile environment towards them, and then they don't want to, um, they seem to be seen to be difficult or to be rocking the boat. Um, and then looking at um, BAME perceptions of health services, and I think this is a really key one because, um, as people have said, I think as Yuri said before, um, that people are often saying don't make everything about race. And I've heard that being said by by my colleagues and I think that when when I saw um, kind of some of my Maori colleagues offended by a a kind of morale-boosting or a video that was meant to boost morale that was made by um, some healthcare professionals in this country, I kind of thought about how that must make them see our healthcare service and how Un- unwelcoming our healthcare service might be to, to various members of the BAME population. So I would say that kind of institutional racism occurs there, but then also with how the BAME population are seen by healthcare services. So I remember when I was in AE um, and a colleague of mine told me that a patient had Mrs. Beebe syndrome, which is a a kind of stereotype that's often given if um, someone, generally an Asian woman, an older woman, is complaining of pain and generally um, English may not be her first language so we can't get a good history and it'll be kind of dismissed as, oh it's Mrs Beebe syndrome, she's saying there's too much pain, there's nothing, nothing really wrong with her. Um, and so I do kind of wonder about um, when BME people present to healthcare services, how their concerns are explored and how their concerns are addressed. Um, particularly when I remember reading um, something about when, when we practice on, on dummies, we're practicing just CPR and, and emergencies. Um, the dummies that are fairer in skin have better outcomes than the dummies that are darker complexion. And so, I mean, if it's happening at that that absolute basic level, um, I'd be interested to see kind of how how it's impacting at different levels. Um, And also, I'd just reiterate, um, I think it was Yuri who was saying that we're not even counting the the race of of this population and of the the people who are dying. And I know with maternal mortality, um, that was uh, only came back that we found out that black women are five times more likely to die as a result of a complication during childbirth than white women, because we started counting the, the statistics and and counting the race of the, the women dying. So if we're not even doing that, I don't know how we can we can kind of make decisions and, and how we can act on them. Um, so yeah, I'd support that. And I'd, I'd also support uh, a kind of an in- inquiry into all of this so that we can act on it now and also so that we can learn for the future. Um, I'm really bad with time, so I feel like I'm probably done for time. Is that
0: good? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Megan, and thank you all of you for answering those questions, and thank you for everyone who has put questions and contributions. And they will read out another round of questions now for our speakers. Uh, but just to reiterate, as I will constantly, um, please do share so as many people can watch this. Um, across the world. And I think what, like, I just wanted to add, I think what Megha was talking about, all I remembered was the question of Sarita Williams, her near-death experience that really brought that question to the highlight about the treating of black women um, during childbirth and so forth. So, without further ado, um, I want to bring some questions. And before I do, there is a comment um, which says, which is from Charlotte that says if a group of black Americans had invaded the state legislation with guns and automatic weapons they would have been shot dead Um, and right-wing white people did it in Michigan and Trump said they were good people. I think those images were absolutely shocking to see and we have a question from Nadia who says we could see that the question of black death is being discussed more in the media and public forums and Many of my friends see this as a sign that after the lockdown, there'll be less racism. What would the speakers respond to this um, assumption? And more than that, what can we do to fight for anti-racist and conclusion after the crisis? And we also have another question from Raj, who says, um, in the era of Trump's racism, what are the prospects, for their, for, uh, prospects are there for overcoming racial divisions and forgoing unity between Blacks and whites in the States, I guess that's another question for Michael. Um, And our last question, which is from Joshua, who asks is, um, the Tories and Trump are looking for ways to force people back to work and school. Now they are trying to find scientists who are willing to scrap the two metre safety distance. Can speakers talk about the political use of science and expertise? And what do... What do you think socialists will um, need to take on to take on this? Um sorry, what do you think socialists will need to to take on this debate more now? Um I hope those questions are clear. Um, so I've got to bring in Megan first, if that's okay. Um, and then we're gonna have Michael and Yuri. So Megan, would you like to go ahead?
1: Yeah, I guess um kind of on on the last question about the political use of science um i think there's something that i'm really interested in in um kind of the the scientific advances that we make and the impact of, of society at the time on those so the way that society um kind of directs what things we choose to to look into and what things we choose to explore but then it also impacts kind of every every stage of of that research process so um of how we decide that we're going to explore something what we decide are are valuable measures and and then kind of how we interpret the, the data that we've got and then also kind of what we decide we have to do to, to act on it um so yeah i do i do think that um socialists kind of will need to be taking up this debate and i think that we we have kind of for, for a long time as well because i think every time we say that um kind of another world is is possible we're saying that yes kind of how things are at the moment might be seen as um, human nature or I think like Michael was talking about neoliberalism and I think often neoliberal creeds get taken as human nature that people are competitive and people are greedy Um, and kind of a lot of um, research then gets done into why are people competitive and greedy but if we kind of step back and look at well what's the context that that research is being being done and it's in um, a society where you have a benefit to saying well people are naturally greedy and we need to work on empathy and we need to teach empathy rather than to look at other societies where maybe people are naturally more communal and there is naturally more, more empathy. Um, so I do think that looking at kind of how our political environment and our socio-economic environment and the, the kind of um, priorities that we have as a society impact on the research that we do and the outcomes that we find from that research is is key Um, especially at this time where a lot we can see a lot of um, kind of tensions in a society that is often prioritizing um, the kind of economic health of the of the country and we talk about it as health as though it's on a par with kind of the health of the population and as though the economy isn't just there to to provide the health of the population and it's not it's, um, it's kind of seen as, as our main focus, rather than our population being our main focus. Um, so I definitely, yeah, I, I really like that question. I definitely think that um, kind of looking at the political use of science and knowledge um, is, is really key at the moment. Um, but then also, um, I just wanted to come to the, um, the question about um, whether there'll be less racism after the virus. Um, and I think there is definitely opportunity there because I think um, just uh, the number of people that I've seen that have been so outraged with um, with how things have been managed, how, how the government is, um, the number of people that I've seen calling for um, kind of BAME groups to be able to work in the NHS as they're um, they're qualified, it's just our kind of immigration policies that are stopping them and, and all of these kinds of things. Um, but I also see quite a few people starting to say, well things can't carry on as they are now and it's cost a lot of money um, kind of well they've said bailing people out during this coronavirus and so afterwards there's going to have to be more austerity and we don't have these end, endless um, kind of supplies of money so I do think that it, it will be a fight um, after coronavirus but what I hope is the the kind of anger that people have got during it and um the kind of motivation that people have for for changing things and also for seeing the the changes that people have demanded for a long time being able to be made in a few days should motivate people to to kind of take on this fight because i can't see that that there's anything kind of uh worth fighting harder for and and yeah i just i don't see that it's it's something that we we can't fight for
0: Oh, thank you, Megan. Um, so we're now that I have Michael um, respond to those questions, if that's OK with you, Michael? Seven minutes or so. Go ahead.
2: For sure, that's definitely OK. So I'll take the questions. I'm looking at three questions here, and I'll go in reverse. So to the first one, I really like a lot of what Megan said about the politi- politicization of science. Um, unfortunately, here in the US, that has a very long history in this country. Um, yeah, for everything from eugenics to, I mean, they use slavery. <laughs> they had a lot of junk science around that. I mean, there was a book in this country, I think about 20 or 30 years ago, called The Bell Curve that was very popular. And it was talking about the fact that, you know, there was different IQ levels for, for uh, different races, which is just ridiculous. And it's been debunked. Um, I think what we have to, you know, I think as, so- as socialists and as working class people, I think what we have to bring to the forefront is. You know, science is not outside of class um, politics in these societies. Um, The people who are going to be screaming for you to reopen the economy and go back to work, they're not making scientific arguments. They're making arguments based upon their profits. So I think we have to point that out to people. Um, You know, be very, very frank with them, very upfront with them that um, these folks are not, you know, also in this country, another thing I left out, you know, we've had a big movement, you know, that's funded by. You know the big polluters and big oil here about climate change denial so um you know that's another example of science being you know uh, succumb to the profit motive and people's wallets instead of you know uh, you know human beings being able to survive and thrive together and you know protecting the earth's ecology but like i said um uh, science is not above class in society so we have to tackle both at the same time and we just have to keep insisting that you know human need and, and human cooperation and our well-being comes before anybody's profits. Um, that's the real science. Um, as far as the second question about uh, these folks with guns at, at the legislator across the country, you know, there was actually an example, you know, several decades ago where the Black Panthers here in the state of California, you know, they went to the state the steps of the state capitol in, in Sacramento. Here in my state, uh, with their guns, and we saw the response to that. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was the governor here before he became the president, um, eventually, you know, he basically instituted the Mulford Act, I believe that's what it was called, which basically, you know, banned people from, you know, openly brandishing weapons, um, loaded or unloaded. So, I think we already know what the response to that would be. I've been posting a lot about that on Facebook and getting some really spirited responses from people. Um, and then, um. The other question is: Will there be less racism since um, black left black deaths have been are being widely discussed? Um, just a short answer, you know. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see a direct correlation myself. I think, I think the only way to eradicate racism is is um, how it's always been done, which is through you know real hard struggle, people forging alliances and realizing that you know um, they have mutual interests and it's not in their interest to be divided up against each other because if you're working at the same factory or you're driving in the same truck or you're working in the same fast food restaurant, um, you're getting exploited all the same as, as, as your co-worker, you know, regardless of race. Now, of course, we know that, you know, these disparities and outcomes, they hit different um, populations um, differently and worse. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, the name of the game is exploitation. And that's what capitalism does. So. I think, you know, there's a great opportunity here for socialists to really go into workplaces and into uh, community organizations and even amongst those who are unorganized and really, you know, make those appeals and make those um, those arguments for, you know, real class solidarity across racial lines. Plus the fact is, you know, I mean, most people are not that reactionary. I mean, there's a lot of reactionary um, ideas and, and, and uneven class consciousness in this society, but you know, what I've found in my own organizing is a lot of that melts away. Um, when you just ask people questions and, you know, not only do you just ask them questions, but you know, this happens during the, during the course of struggle as well. Um, so there's a dialectic between those two that, you know, that we need to really keep hammering at. And then, um, what else did we say? What can we do to fight for anti-racist, anti-racist conclusions, um, amongst this crisis or after this crisis? Um, I think just confront it head on. Um, as Yuri talked about earlier, you know, there is no colorblind societies. That's not what we live at. Uh, we're not in a post racial land. So we have to confront these things head on and, and not be afraid to talk about them very frankly, you know, and build bonds and solidarity with those that we can build with. Um, yeah, we're not always going to be able to build with everybody, but there's plenty of people out there, um, particularly now in this crisis, that we can build with. So we just have to find those outlets and and try to plug into them.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. That was incredible. Um, So our next speaker is going to be Yuri coming back on those questions. So Yuri, would you like to go ahead?
3: Yeah, I'd like to answer the question about politics and science, which Megan and Michael have both um, gone into. So I think, you know, when you think about the way the government has repeated a kind of mantra that we are guided by the science, is what they keep saying. As if to say that there's no political decisions being made in this virus. Actually, what we're doing is just responding to the basic laws of science, which are impervious to these kind of class considerations. And that they hoped would build a kind of firewall between them and how people's experience of the crisis um, made them feel. But I think you only have to go back to what the ideas that Boris Johnson was experimenting with at the beginning of the crisis, the so-called herd immunity strategy, in which they were basically saying we're going to allow a quarter of a million people in Britain to die because to do anything else would disrupt the economy. And then you get to say, well, that was guided by someone's science. The person who came up with the the, the figures was a scientist. Uh, And that should tell us that science isn't neutral science exists within the context of a capitalist society and that therefore our job as working class people as socialists is to interrogate the science we need to ask questions i don't put myself above someone who studies disease i don't put myself above someone who studies public health but i do expect to be able to ask them questions and to think about what the implications of them though their policies are to be able to put to them the class and racial disparities that exist in Britain and how would their policy affect those those questions see I think that experts have their place but experts have to be subservient to the class needs of society as a, as a, as a whole rather than people who act independently of, of, of every everyone else thinking that somehow or another they exist in a in an enlightened sphere that the rest of us can never hope to ever hope to enter so I think we have to get the, the, the science question the right the the right the right way round. Um, on the question about whether there'll be less racism in the future, I think it's a really interesting question because who would have thought that papers like the Daily Mail and the Sun and so on would be in a position where even they have to acknowledge that this crisis is hitting BME people harder uh, than, than it's in the general white population. These are the people who've been telling us all the time that we're constantly moaning about race and you know trying to bring race into everything and they're forced to acknowledge it so something something has changed but has something changed because they've opened their eyes and they've now become enlightened uh, 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 and so on no i think what's happened is that for a whole section of their readership have become aware that something we've been arguing for a long time is actually true and for media to have any influence it has to relate to where its readership is, is at. It means that, in some extent, we have won some important arguments about the, 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 the racist nature of the society we live in. However, what we must really know about racism is that if all the battles that we win are at best temporary under capitalist society. Things can move backwards, and they can move backwards very quickly. And I think it was Megan who was talked in the first section about the sort of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant the way we are presented with good immigrants as people who contribute. Well, now, of course, good immigrants are people who work in the caring industry, people who work in the NHS, people who drive your Uber, people who serve you in, in, in in a shop and so on. They're the good immigrants. But be quite aware that they still have in mind who they think of as the bad immigrant. The bad immigrant is the person who doesn't necessarily speak English very well. The bad Im- immigrant is the person who, who wasn't allowed to work during this crisis. You know, you may have read the report recently about Indian students in Britain who are stranded here because it's not possible to get back to India. You're not allowed to work. And so therefore you're destitute and on the streets collecting money. That's a bad immigrant. That's an immigrant who's not contributing. So we have to be really aware that the future of uh, uh, of, of race politics in Britain will be as contested as it was before. But some of the parameters uh, m- 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 may well shift. So I think we, we should think in those terms. Um, Michael is obviously best place to talk about the, the racial divide in, in the States. And what he said, I think, was really important. I would just like to say that I think the history of the racial divide in the American working class is vital to anyone who wants to overcome racism anywhere, because America is the kind of Citadel of the of, of of racism in the capitalist in the capitalist society, it's the place where racial division is most sharply expressed, and has the worst uh, the worst outcomes. So you know we have to study the U.S. if we want to if we want to end racism everywhere. And I just think that sometimes the history of racism in America is presented uh, in too simplistic a fashion. You know, as though that there's this divide, it's almost insurmountable. White workers are irredeemably racist uh, and that has consequences and and so on. I'd like people to think about reading this book, which is called Hammer and Ho, which is about the struggles in the 1930s to forge an interracial uh, trade union and socialist movement, which for a period was successful enough to make it a real challenge to racism in the united states so much so the state and the Ku klux klan and so on had to throw everything at it to break it what we draw on is a tradition of militant anti-racism and militant trade unionism and the links forged between the two uh, and the power that, that 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 presents and for us that's the most inspiring uh, tradition the people who fought under those circumstances truly are the heroes of the working class movement and i think what that tells us is, is that in a situation where we are fighting the state we have got many enemies on in the uh, amongst racists and uh, in the press and so on it's extremely difficult to fight alone uh, it, it's a it's a difficult task to fight as an individual in this society and that's why i want to close by saying that if you've enjoyed this meeting you've enjoyed the politics of this meeting I think you should seriously consider joining the Socialist Workers Party because you'll be amongst people who want to fight, who will fight absolutely to end the racial divide, to over to smash prejudice uh, wherever we find it. And in order to try and win a a better society. And if you agree with all of that, we'd love to have you with us. So that's me done.
0: Thank you so much, Yuri. And thank you to all our speakers for joining us today. I think that was absolutely amazing. And when Yuri said Suggested a book. I thought he's going to plug himself, but he didn't. So I'm going to do it again. I'm going to plug you, Yuri, um, on uh, A Rebel Sky to leaf Luther King and Say It Loud um, Marxism and the Fight Against Racism, which you can both buy on bookmarks, um, which is. Uh, independent bookshop, which of course at this moment in time is struggling, and um, please do buy as many books as possible online or leave a donation. Um, and as well, just to lead off, we have uh, a couple of more announcements. Uh, there is an important meeting this Wednesday on um, No Return to Unsafe Workplace, um, which is, has an amazing lineup of speakers, including John McDonald and so forth. And um, so please do join. That is this Wednesday at eight, six o'clock. Sorry. And yeah, so there you go, it's up on the screen. So join that. And there's also a day of action um, the following day. So I think I just want to reiterate what you were saying about if you, the struggle um, continues and we have a better future and a different future. Um, and we can't we can't just wait. Um, now we have to be a part of the action, art system, um, better PPE and so forth, but also art, up- demanding for change in the world in which we live in so please do join the Socialist workers party and um, the link is below um, yeah so i think that's how i kind of wanted to end our meeting and um, thank you everyone for joining and please do continue to share this meeting as widely as possible because it's incredibly important so thank you everyone for joining us this evening and thank you to our speakers once again can find up-to-date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers Party or find out more about us you can go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch you can find us on facebook.com slash socialist party on twitter at swp britain instagram at socialist underscore workers underscore party and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites including spotify, deezer, soundcloud, stitcher, Breaker and iTunes.